morning. The first reading today is Psalm 96, reading verses 1 to 7. Psalm 96, verses 1 to 7. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Praise his name. Proclaim his salvation day after day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvellous deeds among all peoples. For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendour and majesty are before him. Strength and glory are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, all you families of nations. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Amen. Um, so we're continuing to explore this notion of a rule of life and how that rule can help us, uh, how that rule can help us as Christians, as people of faith, to live that life and to live intentionally into the life of Jesus and to intentionally build a foundation on the lifestyle and the rhythms of Jesus. And Jesus' life, the rhythms and lifestyle that Jesus lived, helps us in order to do that. And if you want to catch up and if you want to know more about all of that, then you can either speak to somebody who's been here um, or you can uh, catch up online. Um, so last week, um, we, uh, we gave a kind of specific structure on how you can put a rule of life together. Um, and then Peter started to tell us about uh, what we call spiritual disciplines or what is probably more helpful, the, helpful, the, um, the habits of Jesus. And so, so Peter started that, and that's what we're going to do over the next few weeks, is to go through some of those specific habits of Jesus that help us to, uh, to put together a rule of life. There are many, many more than we, than we can really cover uh, over this, uh, this short series, um, but we may revisit it uh, as time goes on. And so we're going to do that over the next, the next few weeks. Uh, on Sunday evenings growing up, uh, one of the traditions in our household, not that we set it up as a tradition, it just kind of happened, was to watch Teach Roadshow on TV. I don't know whether people still do that uh, or not, uh, but it was normally on about, uh, about tea time, and so we would watch it while we were having dinner, or we would watch it if we were hanging about um, around about dinner time. And I think that the lasting endurance of this, uh, this uh, program is is partly built on, uh, on seeing these beautiful objects and these beautiful surroundings, and, uh, and these folks bring these lovely objects for, uh, uh, for folks to look at, and you get to see them uh, close up. And we love to hear the fascinating stories of, um, of how they came to be in that person's possession um, and what those objects uh, mean to them. And it's a lovely, gentle program uh, for a Sunday evening. But of course, those are the secondary issues, the secondary reasons we watch 
the Antiques Roadshow. Those are delightful, subordinate reasons for watching the Antiques Roadshow. Because, of course, the primary, main reason for watching the Antiques Roadshow is to, is to find out how much the stuff is worth. How much the stuff is, 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 is worth. We sit through each segment of the show as the expert drones on about the colors and the history and where it came from and all of that kind of stuff. And there's brush strokes and the dovetailing and all of those, those thinking. And all of the time we're thinking, how much is this thing worth? And is the person going to be crestfallen when they get told that it's not really worth very much? Um, or are they going to be delighted when they find out that their ugly vase is really worth an awful lot? of money. This was funnier in my head, I have to admit. <laughs> I'm going to put myself back up on the screen so I can't hear you. Anyway, we the viewer, we are, we, um, we are happy with the worth of the object. The, the, the happiness that we have is, uh, is dependent, uh, and, and the amount that that's worth is dependent on how posh the person is. So the ceramic that, uh, that the person brings in. Um, if, the, if the person is very posh, then we like it that it's only worth £2.50. Um, or the poor struggling family who have brought a Rembrandt that they had in their attic for the last 20 years, we're delighted when that's worth £3 million and it, and it changes their life. That's kind of how we work. Sometimes we're really surprised when something ugly turns out to be worth a small fortune. And it's always interesting what people will pay for stuff. I remember really vividly that there was an owl or a pair of owls that were ceramic, um, one uh, uh, that somebody brought in, Irish, and they were lurid, and they were really, really tacky, and they were worth about 30,000 pounds about 30 years ago. And I remember saying in the, in, in the family as we were watching it, I wouldn't even give that house room. I would have chucked it in a skip, yet this thing is worth 30-odd thousand pounds. I often wonder what people do with their objects after the Antiques Roadshow. So the painting that was in the attic, does that get cleaned up and given pride of place uh, on the mantelpiece or, uh, or in the main room? Um, and that, uh, that lovely vase that, thought, that, the, that the people thought was worth an awful lot of money that was in the entrance hall, is that relegated to the spare room or is it lobbed in a skip as they go home? How we feel about something, how we feel about something, how much space we give it in our lives, and how much we order our lives to fit those things in is very much dependent on how much we think the thing is worth. So precious objects are given pride of place, they're kept safe in our houses, or sometimes we'll do things like naming them specifically on our insurance policies so that they're kept safe. But it's not just things, of course, that are worth a lot to us. They're not just things to do with finance that, um, that we look after. Things like, like a ticket stub from your first date, um, first anniversary cards, locks from a baby's first haircut, um, old broken watches from a grandparent, or a birdbath from a grandparent's garden or house, or letters that were written to you while you were at university, are all mundane things but when they come from a special person, and especially someone who, uh, who has passed away, they take on a whole deeper meaning. These things are special to us, and we order our lives around them. 
Equally, I grew out of playing with toy cars quite some time ago, I like to tell myself. And after a long, hard day, I don't really want to run around the house chasing after things like a mad thing. Equally, I have no real desire to buy food that I will never eat, clothes that will never fit me, um, or listen to YouTube endlessly on an endless cycle telling me about Minecraft and Roblox. Yet, because my children are precious to me, I'll order my life to chase after them, to buy them clothes, to buy them food, and to uh, at least have, uh, have YouTube on in the background. How we feel about something, how much space we give it in our lives, and how much we order our lives to fit the thing in is very much dependent on how much we feel the thing is worth. There's an old English word. Um, there's an old English word that talks about the worthiness of something or someone, or to acknowledge its worth. And the word is worthship. The old English is we are skip underneath that. And it's from that word that we get our modern English word, worship. So in simple terms, how much something is worth, how much worth we place on something in our lives is linked to how much we worship it. So how much we'll order our lives around a thing or a person, how much time we devote to that thing in our lives tells us what we actually worship. So if we place a lot of worth in money or possessions or going to the gym, then that tells you how much you worship it. How much time we spend on Netflix or computer games or work or the golf course or Facebook or the curling or, or WhatsApp or TikTok or any of these things, that tells you how much worth that is to our lives and therefore how much we worship it. So if we order our lives around Rotary, around Ellen Castle Gardens, around Inner Wheel or the Rural, then that will tell us how much worth we place on that thing and therefore how much we truly worship. Now, there's nothing wrong with any of those things. Those things are great things for the community. They're all great things to be involved in and they really help our community and our society. And I'm not saying to not be involved in them. And for folks who don't have faith, that's grand. But if you call yourself a Christian, if you claim to be a disciple of Jesus, then our foundation, our very baseline is being a follower of Jesus and worshiping God. In his classic book on worship, the hymn writer Graham Kendrick says this. He says, the true quality and depth of our love for God will to a very great degree be evidenced by the quality and depth of our worship. The true quality and depth of our love for God will to a very, true, very, very great degree be evidenced by the quality and depth of our worship. So the question is, what is the quality and depth of my love for God? Does my life reflect God's worth? So do I give a couple of hours to worship a couple of times a month? Or is it an hour a week? How does my 
how does that compare with the other things that go on in my life? It's not just about time, but it's about quality as well. Do I come to worship to simply and humbly spend time in God's presence, to deepen my relationship with God? Do I come ready to hear from God? Do I come to be encouraged or challenged? Do I come prepared to understand the Scripture and to engage with the Bible story, the preaching, and what the hymns are telling me about that and about God? Or do I come to worship looking for a spiritual fix? Do I come looking for my favorite hymns played on my preferred instrument? Do I come hoping that I'll be in and out in less than an hour? What is the quality and depth of my love for God? And how does my life reflect God's worth? How does that reflect our worship? Maybe you've never thought about it. And that's where the rule of life comes in. That's where the rule of life that we've been talking about helps. It gives us a structure and it gives us a framework to be able to look at our lives and see where the balance is, to see what we're truly prioritizing. I, I cannot work that stuff out in my head without having some kind of structure um, because I'll get it wrong. I'll think I'm doing one thing when I'm doing something else. And worship, worship of God is one of the basic fundamental spiritual disciplines. It's something that Jesus did in his life, and it's something that we are called to mimic, that we are called to reflect in our lives. Showing God how much worth we place on him in our lives is a fundamental spiritual discipline, and it's one of the first things that I put into my rule of life. Not because I think that God lacks self-esteem, or is egotistical and needs my worship. But I put it in as a response to what God has done for me and what God has done for you. So in coming to earth and living as a human being and dying in love on the cross to wipe away all the things that, that we've done wrong and to set us free from that past, that is what Jesus did for us. And I believe that that is worth our worship. It's worth prioritizing in my life. So, from my rule of life, I have down in my rule of life, I attend worship uh, once a week. It's my job, but even when it wasn't my job, I still attended worship once a week. Um, in, the, in my monthly section, um, I've got the 12-song challenge. That's a kind of worship thing because it makes me have to sit and, and, and think about how, um, how I would... Uh, take some of Scripture and change that into, into something that speaks to people and, and, and something that people can use for worship. I listen or I play worship music, um, sometimes in the car, sometimes as uh, James and Daniel are falling asleep, often we'll listen to, uh, to worship music. Um, and sometimes people will listen to the Tuesday worship that Rachel and Nicola uh, put together. That is also something that is worship. And for a lot of us, being outside in creation, being um, out in the open airs is a form of worship. The thing you have to be careful with that is that you don't worship the creation, but you worship the creator. So when you're out in the great outdoors, um, don't worship the hills, worship the God who made the hills. Psalm 121 tells us that. Again, the rhythms 
uh, the rule of life helps us to work out our current rhythms of life and how we can fit these things in intentionally. Because remember how we feel about something, how much space we give it in our lives, how much we order our lives around the thing to fit the thing in is very much dependent on how much we feel it's worth. So what is the quality and depth of my love for God? And how does that reflect, how does my life reflect God's worth? Jesus once said, for where, your tr- for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And when he was asked about the fundamentals of, the fa- of faith and life, he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second reading is from 2 Timothy, chapter 3, reading from verse 10 to the end. 2 Timothy 3, reading from verse 10. You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings, What kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured? Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ, in Christ Jesus, will be persecuted, while evildoers and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Amen. May God bless this reading of his holy word. The habit of Jesus, the next spiritual discipline that we're going to talk about this morning, is Bible and study. Reading the Bible, studying the scriptures, and all of those sorts of things, which is one of the main things I think that when we think of spiritual disciplines, we often do think of of reading our Bible. Um, when I was thinking through what I could tell you practically about doing this, many of you have been um, Christians for a very, very long time. We'll have Bibles that are um, probably older than I am, and you will have read the Bible plenty. Also, you can do a quick Google search. You can find an app that can give you a Bible reading plan that can set out for you by days and weeks and months which bits of the Bible to read, to read the most important parts or even the whole Bible. 
Um, there's lots of plans. There's lots of practical help for just simply the act of picking up the Bible and scanning your eyes over the words. So I didn't think it would be super helpful of me to try and come up and give you a plan for that. So I wanted to do is talk about the Bible itself and what we're doing when we read the Bible, when we study. Why are we doing this? What is the point? So in our Bible and study, what are we trying to do? Because the simple fact of the matter is the words, the text of the Bible as we have it, have been used to justify all sorts of horrible things. Nazis used it to justify parts of their agenda and the Holocaust. People use it to spread hatred towards people of different sexual identity and gender identity. People have used it to support slavery. The words of the Bible themselves can be used for all sorts of things. So why are we studying them? There are sort two extreme poles that, that we can kind of flip back and forth to when we're studying the Bible. The first is studying the Bible purely for knowledge. So if we're over here and we're going to pick up the Bible and we're going to read it, one of our impulses, I think, or at least one of mine as someone who likes to read the Bible and study, is to read the Bible um, to try and gain as much knowledge as you can, almost as if you're studying for some kind of cosmic Bible trivia game. And you're reading and you want to know everything and you want to know every word and you want, if someone names a book of the Bible that's super obscure, you can tell them about it. You can know what the words are. And, and you're reading the Bible and you're just trying to jam all of the content of your little leather-bound book into your brain because you want to know everything about it. That's one kind of extreme pull. And that's not always helpful. Having a lot of knowledge about the Bible, about the history, about the text, about how it was written, how it was composed, how it was compiled, that's really helpful. But that's not necessarily what we're trying to do in our own personal devotional Bible study. Now, the other pull is the opposite extreme, and that is reading the Bible for some sort of feeling. When I was in uni, I remember in the, um, I went to Bible college, so everything is sort of bathed in, in Jesus-y stuff. And we would go to the bookshop on campus um, there by the student union. And in the bookshop, by the tills, for 25 cents, you could pick up um, little wrapped things that were called testaments. Um, that were mints. They looked like uh, polo mints in a little wrapper that had a Bible verse on it. And this is sweet, and it's not really super harmful, but it is taking these ideas, it's taking words of, of the Bible and boiling them down to a feeling. You can find tons of devotional books, and I've come across plenty, that boil down little bits of the Bible into different feelings, and even books that have um, scripture references organized by feelings in your life. Again, this is not the worst thing in the world, similar to knowing a lot about the Bible is not the worst thing in the world, but trying to boil down all of the words in, of scripture and every little text you read, trying to make it into just how do I feel today? And is the Bible just going to make me feel better? And if I just open the Bible and I read a verse completely out of context, not paying attention to what's going on, is it going to make me feel better today? So that's kind of the opposite extreme from the sort of studying for the cosmic Bible knowledge exam extreme over here. And I think what I wanted to say to you when it comes to how do we incorporate a spiritual discipline, a habit of Jesus, of studying the Bible, of reading 
scripture is I want to talk about why we do it. And it's not about knowledge for a cosmic Bible exam. And it's not also just to make us feel a bit better. It's about interacting with the text. It's about growing. In the Gospel of John, it begins with the grand and beautiful cosmic imagery that we have come to know and we read a lot. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We often offhand use a phrase for the Bible. We call it the Word of God. But biblically speaking, that's not the Word of God. The Bible isn't the Word of God. In fact, the Bible doesn't exist in the Bible. You know, they have scrolls of the Old Testament, and, and you know, by the time of 2 Timothy, our, our reading for this, there would have been some uh, manuscripts of Paul's letters floating about. But the Bible doesn't exist in the Bible. You know what I mean? You, you, you don't have that as a, as a sort of reference point. What the Bible calls the Word of God is Jesus. So when we're studying the scriptures, when we're reading the Bible, it is not the Bible itself, the actual ink and the paper and the leather-bound, beautiful Bible that we have that is our object of study. We're studying Jesus. We're trying to interact with the text to get at the very heart of God. The Bible is a window through which we glimpse the true word of God, Jesus Christ. And this kind of theology comes out of exactly what I was talking about earlier, of the Bible being used to justify things like that, Try, not trying to boil down um, the theologian Karl Barth and everything he wrote and thought down into the simplest thing. But one of the things that Karl Barth, who was a German or a Swiss theologian, um, at the time of Nazi Germany, was seeing the Nazis use the Bible to justify their anti-Semitism, to justify their violence, and to justify their expansion. And so Karl Barth thought, what can, how can we see the Bible? How can we redeem reading the Bible if it can just be used for these atrocities? And that was his way into it, was to recognize that the Word of God is Jesus Christ. The Word of God is not the Bible. The Bible is our entry point into seeing Jesus. So as we read the Bible, if you go online, find an app, Google Bible reading plan, there's countless versions of it. Find one that works for you. But the practical help I want to offer you is don't just read it for knowledge and don't just read it for feeling. Read it as a window into the heart of God, into seeing Jesus, the Word of God. That's what we're attempting to do when we study the Bible. We're trying to get to Jesus. And if in our study of the Bible we are not formed and shaped into more of the kind of people who know the heart of God, who know how to love and to offer grace and welcome, to fight for justice and equality and for welcome and for love and all of the things that Jesus was about, the Bible is about a lot of different things. There's a lot of stories in the Bible. But if we're reading to try and get to Jesus, that's how we can make sense of so much of these things. If you've ever tried to read the Bible and think, I'm going to be good, I'm going to be a good Christian, I'm going to read the Bible, and you pick it up and you start with Genesis chapter 1. Do you make it very far? Do you make it to the end? Probably not. I've done it many times in my life. Going to do it. What is it about Leviticus? You get a bit, okay, meh got something better to do. 
because that's not what it's about. Find a plan, find something that fits into your rule of life, into your daily, weekly, monthly sort of routine. But look for Jesus. Read the words and look for Jesus. And in fact, that's even what the early Christians do. That's what the apostles did when they read the Hebrew Bible, when they looked back on the Old Testament text that they had. They looked for Jesus. That's my encouragement to you. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the Bible that you have given us, that we have collected and put together and passed on through generations. Let it be a window to your heart. Let it be a window to let us know Jesus, your son, even better. And to become more his disciples and to become more your kingdom. And all this we pray in your son's name.